0: applauding, to a frenzy of cheering and chanting. But before they could answer the Orwell question, the auditorium went black, and the 1984 commercial appeared on the screen. When it was over, the entire audience was on its feet, cheering. With a flair for the dramatic, Jobs walked across the dark stage to a small table with a cloth bag on it. Now I'd like to show you Macintosh in person, he said. He took out the computer, keyboard, and mouse, hooked them together deftly, then pulled one of the new three-and-a-half-inch floppies from his shirt pocket. The theme from Chariots of Fire began to play. Jobs held his breath for a moment, because the demo had not worked well the night before, but this time it ran flawlessly. The word... Macintosh scrolled horizontally on screen, then underneath it the words, Insanely Great, appeared in script, as if being slowly written by hand. Not used to such beautiful graphic displays, the audience quieted for a moment. A few gasps could be heard, and then, in rapid succession, came a series of screenshots— Bill Atkinson's quick draw graphics package followed by displays of different fonts, documents, charts, drawings, a chess game, a spreadsheet, and a rendering of Steve Jobs with a thought bubble containing a Macintosh. When it was over, Jobs smiled and offered a treat. We've done a lot of talking about Macintosh recently, he said, but today, for the first time ever, I'd like to let Macintosh speak for itself. With that, he strolled back over to the computer, pressed the button on the mouse, and in a vibrato but endearing electronic deep voice, Macintosh became the first computer to introduce itself. Hello, I'm Macintosh. It sure is great to get out of that bag, it began. The only thing it didn't seem to know how to do was to wait for the wild cheering and shrieks that erupted. Instead of basking for a moment, it barreled ahead. Unaccustomed as I am to public speaking, I'd like to share with you a maxim I thought of the first time I met an IBM mainframe. Never trust a computer you can't lift. Once again, the roar almost drowned out its final lines. Obviously, I can talk, but right now I'd like to sit back and listen. So it is, with considerable pride, that I introduce a man who's been like a father to me, Steve Jobs. Pandemonium erupted, with people in the crowd jumping up and down and pumping their fists in a frenzy. Jobs nodded slowly a tight-lipped but broad smile on his face, then looked down and started to choke up. The ovation continued for five minutes. After the Macintosh team returned to Banley 3 that afternoon, a truck pulled into the parking lot and Jobs had them all gather next to it. Inside were a hundred new Macintosh computers, each personalized with a plaque. Steve presented them one at a time to each team member with a handshake and a smile as the rest of us stood around cheering, Hertzfeld recalled. It had been a grueling ride and many egos had been bruised by Jobs's obnoxious and rough management style, but neither Raskin nor Wozniak nor Scully nor anyone else at the company could have pulled off the creation of the Macintosh nor would it likely have emerged from focus groups and committees. On the day he unveiled the Macintosh, a reporter from Popular Science asked Jobs what type of market research he had done. Jobs responded by scoffing. Did Alexander Graham Bell do any market research before he invented the telephone? Chapter 16 Gates and Jobs When Orbits Intersect The Macintosh Partnership In astronomy, a binary system occurs when the orbits of two stars are linked because of their gravitational interaction. There have been analogous situations in history when an era is shaped by the relationship and rivalry of two orbiting superstars, Albert Einstein and Niels Bohr in 20th Century Physics, for example, or Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton in Early American Governance. For the first 30 years of the personal computer age, beginning in the late 1970s, the defining binary star system was composed of two high-energy college dropouts, both born in 1955. Bill Gates and Steve Jobs despite their similar ambitions at the confluence of technology and business, had very different personalities and backgrounds. Gates's father was a prominent Seattle lawyer, his mother a civic leader on a variety of prestigious boards. He became a tech geek at the area's finest private school, Lakeside High, but he was never a rebel, hippie, spiritual seeker, or member of the counterculture. Instead of a blue box to rip off the phone company, Gates created for his school a program for scheduling classes, which helped him get into ones with the right girls, and a car-counting program for local traffic engineers. He went to Harvard, and when he decided to drop out, it was not to find enlightenment with an Indian guru, but to start a computer software company. Gates was good at computer coding— unlike Jobs, and his mind was more practical, disciplined, and abundant in analytic processing power. Jobs was more intuitive and romantic and had a greater instinct for making technology usable, design delightful, and interfaces friendly. He had a passion for perfection, which made him fiercely demanding, and he managed by charisma and scattershot intensity. Gates was more methodical, he held tightly scheduled product review meetings where he would cut to the heart of issues with lapidary skill. Both could be rude, but with Gates, who early in his career seemed to have a typical geek's flirtation with the fringes of the Asperger's scale, the cutting behavior tended to be less personal, based more on intellectual incisiveness than emotional callousness. Jobs would stare at people with a burning, wounding intensity, Gates sometimes had trouble making eye contact, but he was fundamentally humane. Each one thought he was smarter than the other one, but Steve generally treated Bill as someone who was slightly inferior, especially in matters of taste and style, said Andy Hertzfeld. Bill looked down on Steve because he couldn't actually program. From the beginning of their relationship, Gates was fascinated by Jobs and slightly envious of his mesmerizing effect on people. But he also found him fundamentally odd and weirdly flawed as a human being, and he was put off by Jobs' rudeness and his tendency to be either in the mode of saying you were shit or trying to seduce you. For his part, Jobs found Gates unnervingly narrow. He'd be a broader guy if he had dropped acid once or gone off to an ashram when he was younger, Jobs once declared. Their differences in personality and character would lead them to opposite sides of what would become the fundamental divide in the digital age. Jobs was a perfectionist who craved control and indulged in the uncompromising temperament of an artist. He and Apple became the exemplars of a digital strategy that tightly integrated hardware, software, and content into a seamless package. Gates was a smart, calculating, and pragmatic analyst of business and technology. He was open to licensing Microsoft's operating system and software to a variety of manufacturers. After thirty years, Gates would develop a grudging respect for Jobs. He really never knew much about technology, but he had an amazing instinct for what works, he said. But Jobs never reciprocated by fully appreciating Gates' real strengths. Bill is basically unimaginative and has never invented anything, which is why I think he's more comfortable now in philanthropy than technology. Jobs said unfairly. He just shamelessly ripped off other people's ideas. When the Macintosh was first being developed, Jobs went up to visit Gates at his office near Seattle. Microsoft had written some applications for the Apple II, including a spreadsheet program called Multiplan, and Jobs wanted to excite Gates and company about doing even more for the forthcoming Macintosh. Sitting in Gates's conference room, Jobs spun an enticing vision of a computer for the masses with a friendly interface, which would be churned out by the millions in an automated California factory. His description of the dream factory sucking in the California silicon components and turning out finished Macintoshes caused the Microsoft team to code name the project Sand. They even reverse engineered it into an acronym for Steve's Amazing New Device. Gates had launched Microsoft by writing a version of BASIC, a programming language for the Altair. Jobs wanted Microsoft to write a version of BASIC for the Macintosh because Wozniak, despite much prodding by Jobs, had never enhanced his version of the Apple II's BASIC to handle floating point numbers. In addition, Jobs wanted Microsoft to write application software, such as word processing and spreadsheet programs for the Macintosh. At the time, Jobs was a king and Gates still a courtier. In 1982, Apple's annual sales were $1 billion, while Microsoft's were a mere $32 million. Gates signed on to do graphical versions of a new spreadsheet called Excel, a word-processing program called Word and Basic. Gates frequently went to Cupertino for demonstrations of the Macintosh operating system, and he was not very impressed. I remember the first time we went down, Steve had this app where it was just things bouncing around on the screen, he said. That was the only app that ran. Gates was also put off by Jobs' attitude. It was kind of a weird seduction visit where Steve was saying, we don't really need you, and we're doing this great thing, and it's under the cover. He's in his Steve Jobs sales mode, but kind of the sales mode that also says, I don't need you, but I might let you be involved. The Macintosh Pirates found Gates hard to take. You could tell that Bill Gates was not a very good listener. He couldn't bear to have anyone explain how something worked to him, He had to leap ahead instead and guess about how he thought it would work, Hertzfeld recalled. They showed him how the Macintosh's cursor moves smoothly across the screen without flickering. What kind of hardware do you use to draw the cursor? Gates asked. Hertzfeld, who took great pride that they could achieve their functionality solely using software, replied, We don't have any special hardware for it. Gates insisted that it was necessary to have special hardware to move the cursor that way. So what do you say to somebody like that? Bruce Horn, one of the Macintosh engineers, later said. It made it clear to me that Gates was not the kind of person that would understand or appreciate the elegance of a Macintosh. Despite their mutual wariness Both teams were excited by the prospect that Microsoft would create graphical software for the Macintosh that would take personal computing into a new realm, and they went to dinner at a fancy restaurant to celebrate. Microsoft soon dedicated a large team to the task. We had more people working on the Mac than he did, Gates said. He had about 14 or 15 people. We had like 20 people. We really bet our life on it. And even though Jobs thought that they didn't exhibit much taste, the Microsoft programmers were persistent. They came out with applications that were terrible, Jobs recalled. But they kept at it, and they made them better. Eventually, Jobs became so enamored of Excel that he made a secret bargain with Gates. If Microsoft would make Excel exclusively for the Macintosh for two years and not make a version for IBM PCs, then Jobs would shut down his team working on a version of BASIC for the Macintosh and instead indefinitely license Microsoft's BASIC. Gates smartly took the deal, which infuriated the Apple team, whose project got canceled and gave Microsoft a lever in future negotiations. For the time being, Gates and Jobs forged a bond. That summer, they went to a conference hosted by the industry analyst Ben Rosen at a Playboy Club retreat in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, where nobody knew about the graphical interfaces that Apple was developing. Everybody was acting like the IBM PC was everything, which was nice, but Steve and I were kind of smiling that, hey, we've got something, Gates recalled. And he's kind of leaking, but nobody actually caught on. Gates became a regular at Apple retreats. I went to every luau, said Gates. I was part of the crew. Gates enjoyed his frequent visits to Cupertino, where he got to watch Jobs interact erratically with his employees and display his obsessions. Steve was in his ultimate Pied Piper mode, proclaiming how the Mac will change the world and overworking people like mad with incredible tensions and complex personal relationships. Sometimes Jobs would begin on a high, then lapse into sharing his fears with Gates. We'd go down Friday night, have dinner, and Steve would just be promoting that everything is great. Then the second day, without fail, he'd be kind of, Oh, shit, is this thing going to sell? Oh, God, I have to raise the price. I'm sorry I did that to you, and my team is a bunch of idiots. Gates saw Jobs's reality distortion field at play when the Xerox Star was launched. At a joint team dinner one Friday night, Jobs asked Gates how many stars had been sold thus far. Gates said six hundred. The next day, in front of Gates and the whole team, Jobs said that three hundred stars had been sold, forgetting that Gates had just told everyone it was actually six hundred. So his whole team starts looking at me like, Are you going to tell him that he's full of shit, Gates recalled, and in that case I didn't take the bait. On another occasion, Jobs and his team were visiting Microsoft and having dinner at the Seattle Tennis Club. Jobs launched into a sermon about how the Macintosh and its software would be so easy to use that there would be no manuals. It was like anybody who ever thought that there would be a manual for any Mac application was the greatest idiot, said Gates. And we were like, does he really mean it? Should we not tell him that we have people who are actually working on manuals? After a while, the relationship became bumpier. The original plan was to have some of the Microsoft applications, such as Excel, Chart, and File, carry the Apple logo and come bundled with the purchase of a Macintosh. We were going to get $10 per app per machine, said Gates but this arrangement upset competing software makers. In addition, it seemed that some of Microsoft's programs might be late. So Jobs invoked a provision in his deal with Microsoft and decided not to bundle its software. Microsoft would have to scramble to distribute its software as products sold directly to consumers. Gates went along without much complaint. He was already getting used to the fact that, As he put it, jobs could play fast and loose, and he suspected that the unbundling would actually help Microsoft. We could make more money selling our software separately, Gates said. It works better that way if you're willing to think you're going to have a reasonable market share. Microsoft ended up making its software for various other platforms, and it began to give priority to the IBM PC version of Microsoft Word rather than the Macintosh version. In the end, Jobs' decision to back out of the bundling deal hurt Apple more than it did Microsoft. When Excel for the Macintosh was released, Jobs and Gates unveiled it together at a press dinner at New York's Tavern on the Green. Asked if Microsoft would make a version of it for IBM PCs, Gates did not reveal the bargain he had made with Jobs, but merely answered that, In time, that might happen. Jobs took the microphone. I'm sure in time we'll all be dead, he joked. The Battle of the GUI At that time, Microsoft was producing an operating system known as DOS, which it licensed to IBM and compatible computers. It was based on an old-fashioned command-line interface that confronted users with surly little prompts such as c colon backslash right angle. As Jobs and his team began to work closely with Microsoft, they grew worried that it would copy Macintosh's graphical user interface. Andy Hertzfeld noticed that his contact at Microsoft was asking detailed questions about how the Macintosh operating system worked. I told Steve that I suspected that Microsoft was going to clone the Mac, he recalled. They were right to worry. Gates believed that graphical interfaces were the future and that Microsoft had just as much right as Apple did to copy what had been developed at Xerox PARC. As he freely admitted later, we sort of say, hey, we believe in graphics interfaces. We saw the Xerox Alto, too. In their original deal, Jobs had convinced Gates to agree that Microsoft would not create graphical software for anyone other than Apple until a year after the Macintosh shipped in January 1983. Unfortunately for Apple, it did not provide for the possibility that the Macintosh launch would be delayed for a year. So Gates was within his rights when, in November 1983, He revealed that Microsoft planned to develop a new operating system for IBM PCs featuring a graphical interface with Windows, icons, and a mouse for point-and-click navigation. It would be called Windows. Gates hosted a Jobs-like product announcement, the most lavish thus far in Microsoft's history, at the Helmsley Palace Hotel in New York. Jobs was furious. He knew there was little he could do about it. Microsoft's deal with Apple not to do competing graphical operating software was running out, but he lashed out nonetheless. Get Gates down here immediately, he ordered Mike Boych, who was Apple's evangelist to other software companies. Gates arrived, alone and willing to discuss things with Jobs. He called me down to get pissed off at me, Gates recalled. I went down to Cupertino, like a command performance. I told him, we're doing Windows. I said to him, we're betting our company on graphical interfaces. They met in Jobs' conference room, where Gates found himself surrounded by ten Apple employees who were eager to watch their boss assail him. Jobs didn't disappoint his troops. You're ripping us off, he shouted. I trusted you, and now you're stealing from us. Hertzfeld recalled that Gates just sat there coolly, looking Steve in the eye before hurling back in his squeaky voice what became a classic zinger. Well, Steve, I think there's more than one way of looking at it. I think it's more like we both had this rich neighbor named Xerox, and I broke into his house to steal the TV set and found out that you had already stolen it. Gates's two-day visit provoked the full range of Jobs' emotional responses and manipulation techniques. It also made clear that the Apple-Microsoft symbiosis had become a scorpion dance, with both sides circling warily, knowing that a sting by either could cause problems for both. After the confrontation in the conference room, Gates quietly gave Jobs a private demo of what was being planned for Windows. Steve didn't know what to say, Gates recalled. He could either say, Oh, this is a violation of something, but he didn't. He chose to say, Oh, it's actually really a piece of shit. Gates was thrilled because it gave him a chance to calm Jobs down for a moment. I said, Yes. It's a nice little piece of shit. So Jobs went through a gamut of other emotions. During the course of this meeting, he's just ruder than shit, Gates said. And then there's a part where he's almost crying, like, oh, just give me a chance to get this thing off. Gates responded by becoming very calm. I'm good at when people are emotional. I'm kind of less emotional. As he often did when he wanted to have a serious conversation, Jobs suggested they go on a long walk. They trekked the streets of Cupertino back and forth to De Anza College, stopping at a diner and then walking some more. We had to take a walk, which is not one of my management techniques, Gates said. That was when he began saying things like, "Okay, okay, but don't make it too much like what we're doing." As it turned out. Microsoft wasn't able to get Windows 1.0 ready for shipping until the fall of 1985. Even then, it was a shoddy product. It lacked the elegance of the Macintosh interface, and it had tiled windows rather than the magical clipping of overlapping windows that Bill Atkinson had devised. Reviewers ridiculed it, and consumers spurned it. Nevertheless, as is often the case with Microsoft products, Persistence eventually made Windows better and then dominant. Jobs never got over his anger. They just ripped us off completely, because Gates has no shame, Jobs told me almost thirty years later. Upon hearing this, Gates responded, if he believes that, he really has entered into one of his own reality distortion fields. In a legal sense, Gates was right as courts over the years have subsequently ruled. And on a practical level, he had a strong case as well. Even though Apple made a deal for the right to use what it saw at Xerox PARC, it was inevitable that other companies would develop similar graphical interfaces. As Apple found out, the look and feel of a computer interface design is a hard thing to protect. And yet Jobs' dismay was understandable. Apple had been more innovative, imaginative, elegant in execution, and brilliant in design. But even though Microsoft created a crudely copied series of products, it would end up winning the war of operating systems. This exposed an aesthetic flaw in how the universe worked. The best and most innovative products don't always win. A decade later, This truism cost jobs to let loose a rant that was somewhat arrogant and over-the-top, but also had a whiff of truth to it. The only problem with Microsoft is they just have no taste. They have absolutely no taste, he said. I don't mean that in a small way. I mean that in a big way, in the sense that they don't think of original ideas and they don't bring much culture into their product. Chapter 17 Icarus What goes up? Flying High The launch of the Macintosh in January 1984 propelled Jobs into an even higher orbit of celebrity, as was evident during a trip to Manhattan he took at the time he went to a party that Yoko Ono threw for her son, Sean Lennon, and gave the nine-year-old a Macintosh. The boy loved it. The artists, Andy Warhol and Keith Herring, were there, and they were so enthralled by what they could create with the machine that the contemporary art world almost took an ominous turn. I drew a circle, Warhol exclaimed proudly after using quick-draw. Warhol insisted that Jobs take a computer to Mick Jagger. When Jobs arrived at the Rockstars' townhouse, Jagger seemed baffled. He didn't quite know who Jobs was. Later, Jobs told his team, I think he was on drugs. Either that or he's brain damaged. Jagger's daughter Jade, however, took to the computer immediately and started drawing with Mac paint, so Jobs gave it to her instead. He bought the top-floor duplex apartment that he'd shown Scully in the San Remo on Manhattan's Central Park West and hired James Freed of I.M. Pei's firm to renovate it, but he never moved in. He would later sell it to Bono for fifteen million dollars. He also bought an old Spanish colonial-style fourteen-bedroom mansion in Woodside in the hills above Palo Alto that had been built by a copper baron which he moved into but never got around to furnishing. At Apple, his status revived. Instead of seeking ways to curtail Jobs's authority, Scully gave him more. The Lisa and Macintosh divisions were folded together with Jobs in charge. He was flying high, but this did not serve to make him more mellow. Indeed, there was a memorable display of his brutal honesty when he stood in front of the combined Lisa and Macintosh teams to describe how they would be merged. His Macintosh group leaders would get all of the top positions, he said, and a quarter of the Lisa staff would be laid off. You guys failed, he said, looking directly at those who had worked on the Lisa. You're a B team, B players. Too many people here are B or C players. So today we are releasing some of you— to have the opportunity to work at our sister companies here in the Valley. Bill Atkinson, who had worked on both teams, thought it was not only callous but unfair. These people had worked really hard and were brilliant engineers, he said. But Jobs had latched on to what he believed was a key management lesson from his Macintosh experience. You have to be ruthless if you want to build a team of A players. It's too easy as a team grows to put up with a few B players, and they then attract a few more B players, and soon you will even have some C players, he recalled. The Macintosh experience taught me that A players like to work only with other A players, which means you can't indulge B players. For the time being, Jobs and Scully were able to convince themselves that their friendship was still strong they professed their fondness so effusively and often that they sounded like high school sweethearts at a hallmark card display. The first anniversary of Scully's arrival came in May 1984, and to celebrate, Jobs lured him to a dinner party at Le Mouton Noir, an elegant restaurant in the hills southwest of Cupertino. To Scully's surprise, Jobs had gathered the apple board, its top managers, and even some East Coast investors. As they all congratulated him during cocktails, Scully recalled a beaming Steve stood in the background, nodding his head up and down and wearing a Cheshire Cat smile on his face. Jobs began the dinner with a fulsome toast. The happiest two days for me were when Macintosh shipped and when John Scully agreed to join Apple, he said. This has been the greatest year I've ever had in my whole life because I've learned so much from John. He then presented Scully with a montage of memorabilia from the year. In response, Scully effused about the joys of being Jobs' partner for the past year, and he concluded with a line that, for different reasons, everyone at the table found memorable. Apple has one leader, he said, Steve and me. He looked across the room, caught Jobs' eye, and watched him smile. It was as if we were communicating with each other, Scully recalled. But he also noticed that Arthur Rock and some of the others were looking quizzical, perhaps even skeptical. They were worried that Jobs was completely rolling him. They had hired Scully to control Jobs, and now it was clear that Jobs was the one in control. Scully was so eager for Steve's approval that he was unable to stand up to him, Rock recalled. Keeping Jobs happy and deferring to his expertise may have seemed like a smart strategy to Scully, but he failed to realize that it was not in Jobs' nature to share control. Deference did not come naturally to him. He began to become more vocal about how he thought the company should be run. At the 1984 business strategy meeting, for example, he pushed to make the company's centralized sales and marketing staffs bid on the right to provide their services to the various product divisions. This would have meant, for example, that the Macintosh Group could decide not to use Apple's marketing team and instead create one of its own. No one else was in favor, but Jobs kept trying to ram it through. People were looking to me to take control, to get him to sit down and shut up, but I didn't, Scully recalled. As the meeting broke up, he heard someone whisper, why doesn't Scully shut him up? When Jobs decided to build a state-of-the-art factory in Fremont to manufacture the Macintosh, his aesthetic passions and controlling nature kicked into high gear. He wanted the machinery to be painted in bright hues, like the Apple logo, but he spent so much time going over paint chips that Apple's manufacturing director, Matt Carter, finally just installed them in their usual beige and gray. When Jobs took a tour, he ordered that the machines be repainted in the bright colors he wanted. Carter objected. This was precision equipment, and repainting the machines could cause problems. He turned out to be right. One of the most expensive machines, which got painted bright blue, ended up not working properly and was dubbed Steve's Folly. Finally, Carter quit. It took so much energy to fight him, and it was usually over something so pointless that finally I had enough, he recalled. Jobs tapped as a replacement Debbie Coleman, the spunky but good-natured Macintosh financial officer, who had once won the team's annual award for the person who best stood up to Jobs. But she knew how to cater to his whims when necessary. When Apple's art director, Clement Mock, informed her that Jobs wanted the walls to be pure white, she protested. You can't paint a factory pure white. There's going to be dust and stuff all over, Mock replied. There's no white that's too white for Steve. She ended up going along. With its pure white walls and its bright blue, yellow, and red machines, the factory floor looked like an Alexander Calder showcase, said Coleman. When asked about his obsessive concern over the look of the factory, Jobs said it was a way to ensure a passion for perfection. I'd go out to the factory and I'd put on a white glove to check for dust. I'd find it everywhere on machines on the tops of the racks, on the floor, and I'd ask Debbie to get it cleaned. I told her I thought we should be able to eat off the floor of the factory. Well, this drove Debbie up the wall. She didn't understand why, and I couldn't articulate it back then. See, I'd been very influenced by what I'd seen in Japan. Part of what I greatly admired there, and part of what we were lacking in our factory, was a sense of teamwork and discipline. If we didn't have the discipline to keep that place spotless, then we weren't going to have the discipline to keep all these machines running. One Sunday morning, Jobs brought his father to see the factory. Paul Jobs had always been fastidious about making sure that his craftsmanship was exacting and his tools in order, and his son was proud to show that he could do the same. Coleman came along to give the tour. Steve was like beaming, she recalled. He was so proud to show his father this creation. Jobs explained how everything worked, and his father seemed truly admiring. He kept looking at his father, who touched everything and loved how clean and perfect everything looked. Things were not quite as sweet when Danielle Mitterrand toured the factory. The Cuba admiring wife of France's socialist president, Francois Mitterrand, asked a lot of questions through her translator about the working conditions, while Jobs, who had grabbed Alan Rossman to serve as his translator, kept trying to explain the advanced robotics and technology. After Jobs talked about the just-in-time production schedules, she asked about overtime pay. He was annoyed, so he described how automation helped him keep down labor costs, a subject he knew would not delight her. Is it hard work? she asked. How much vacation time do they get? Jobs couldn't contain himself. If she's so interested in their welfare, he said to her translator, tell her she can come work here any time. The translator turned pale and said nothing. After a moment, Rossman stepped in to say, in French, Monsieur Jobs says he thanks you for your visit and your interest in the factory. Neither Jobs nor Madame Mitterrand knew what happened, Rossman recalled, but her translator looked very relieved. Afterward, as he sped his Mercedes down the freeway toward Cupertino, Jobs fumed to Rossman about Madame Mitterrand's attitude. At one point he was going just over one hundred miles per hour when a policeman stopped him and began writing a ticket. After a few minutes, as the officer scribbled away, Jobs honked. Excuse me, the policeman said. Jobs replied, I'm in a hurry. Amazingly, the officer didn't get mad. He simply finished writing the ticket and warned that if Jobs was caught going over 55 again, he would be sent to jail. As soon as the policeman left, Jobs got back on the road and accelerated to 100. He absolutely believed that the normal rules didn't apply to him, Rosman marveled. His wife, Joanna Hoffman, saw the same thing when she accompanied Jobs to Europe a few months after the Macintosh was launched. He was just completely obnoxious and thinking he could get away with anything, she recalled. In Paris, she had arranged a formal dinner with French software developers, but Jobs suddenly decided he didn't want to go. Instead, he shut the car door on Hoffman and told her he was going to see the poster artist Falon instead. The developers were so pissed off they wouldn't shake our hands, she said. In Italy, he took an instant dislike to Apple's general manager, a soft rotund guy who had come from a conventional business. Jobs told him bluntly that he was not impressed with his team or his sales strategy, You don't deserve to be able to sell the mac, Jobs said coldly. But that was mild compared to his reaction to the restaurant the hapless manager had chosen. Jobs demanded a vegan meal, but the waiter very elaborately proceeded to dish out a sauce filled with sour cream. Jobs got so nasty that Hoffman had to threaten him. She whispered that if he didn't calm down, she was going to pour her hot coffee on his lap. The most substantive disagreements Jobs had on the European trip concerned sales forecasts. Using his reality distortion field, Jobs was always pushing his team to come up with higher projections. He kept threatening the European managers that he wouldn't give them any allocations unless they projected bigger forecasts. They insisted on being realistic and Hoffman had to referee. By the end of the trip, My whole body was shaking uncontrollably, Hoffman recalled. It was on this trip that Jobs first got to know Jean-Louis Gasset, Apple's manager in France. Gasset was among the few to stand up successfully to Jobs on the trip. He has his own way with the truth, Gasset later remarked. The only way to deal with him was to out-bully him. When Jobs made his usual threat about cutting down on France's allocations, if Gasset didn't jack up sales projections, Gasset got angry. I remember grabbing his lapel and telling him to stop, and then he backed down. I used to be an angry man myself. I am a recovering assaholic, so I could recognize that in Steve. Gasset was impressed, however, at how Jobs could turn on the charm when he wanted to. François Mitterrand had been preaching the gospel of Informatique pour tous, computing for all, and various academic experts in technology such as Marvin Minsky and Nicholas Negroponte came over to sing in the choir. Jobs gave a talk to the group at the Hotel Bristol and painted a picture of how France could move ahead if it put computers in all of its schools. Paris also brought out the romantic in him. Both Gasset and Negroponte tell tales of him pining over women while there. Falling After the burst of excitement that accompanied the release of Macintosh, its sales began to taper off in the second half of 1984. The problem was a fundamental one. It was a dazzling but woefully slow and underpowered computer, and no amount of hoopla could mask that. Its beauty was that its user interface looked like a sunny playroom rather than a somber dark screen with sickly green pulsating letters and surly command lines. But that led to its greatest weakness. A character on a text-based display took less than a byte of code whereas when the Mac drew a letter, pixel by pixel, in any elegant font you wanted, it required twenty or thirty times more memory. The Lisa handled this by shipping with more than one thousand K RAM, whereas the Macintosh made do with one hundred twenty-eight K. Another problem was the lack of an internal hard disk drive. Jobs had called Joanna Hoffman a Xerox bigot when she fought for such a storage device. He insisted that the Macintosh have just one floppy disk drive. If you wanted to copy data, you could end up with a new form of tennis elbow from having to swap floppy disks in and out of the single drive. In addition, the Macintosh lacked a fan, another example of Jobs' dogmatic stubbornness. Fans, he felt, detracted from the calm of a computer. This caused many component failures and earned the Macintosh the nickname the Beige Toaster, which did not enhance its popularity. It was so seductive that it had sold well enough for the first few months, but when people became more aware of its limitations, sales fell. As Hoffman later lamented, the reality distortion field can serve as a spur, but then reality itself hits. At the end of 1984, with Lisa sales virtually non-existent and Macintosh sales falling below 10,000 a month, Jobs made a shoddy and atypical decision out of desperation. He decided to take the inventory of unsold Lisas, graft on a Macintosh emulation program, and sell them as a new product, the Macintosh XL. Since the Lisa had been discontinued and would not be restarted, It was an unusual instance of Jobs producing something that he did not believe in. I was furious because the Mac XL wasn't real, said Hoffman. It was just to blow the excess leases out the door. It sold well, and then we had to discontinue the horrible hoax, so I resigned. The dark mood was evident in the ad that was developed in January 1985, which was supposed to reprise the anti-IBM sentiment of the resonant 1984 ad. Unfortunately, there was a fundamental difference. The first ad had ended on a heroic, optimistic note, but the storyboards presented by Lee Clow and Jay Shiat for the new ad, titled Lemmings, showed dark-suited, blindfolded corporate managers marching off a cliff to their death. From the beginning, both Jobs and Scully were uneasy. It didn't seem as if it would convey a positive or glorious image of Apple, but instead would merely insult every manager who had bought an IBM. Jobs and Scully asked for other ideas, but the agency folks pushed back. You guys didn't want to run 1984 last year, one of them said. According to Scully, Lee Clow added, I will put my whole reputation, everything, on this commercial. When the filmed version, done by Ridley Scott's brother, Tony, came in, the concept looked even worse. The mindless managers, marching off the cliff, were singing a funeral-paced version of the Snow White song, Hi-Ho, Hi-Ho, and the dreary filmmaking made it even more depressing than the storyboards portended. I can't believe you're going to insult business people across America by running that, Debbie Coleman yelled at Jobs when she saw the ad. At the marketing meetings, she stood up to make her point about how much she hated it. I literally put a resignation letter on his desk. I wrote it on my Mac. I thought it was an affront to corporate managers. We were just beginning to get a toehold with desktop publishing. Nevertheless, Jobs and Scully bent to the agencies and treaties and ran the commercial during the Super Bowl. They went to the game together at Stanford Stadium with Scully's wife, Lizzie, who couldn't stand Jobs, and Jobs' new girlfriend, Tina Redzie. When the commercial was shown near the end of the fourth quarter of a dreary game, the fans watched on the overhead screen and had little reaction. Across the country, most of the response was negative. It insulted the very people Apple was trying to reach, the president of a market research firm told Fortune. Apple's marketing manager suggested afterward that the company might want to buy an ad in the Wall Street Journal apologizing. Jay Shiat threatened that if Apple did that, his agency would buy the facing page and apologize for the apology. Jobs' discomfort with both the ad and the situation at Apple in general was on display when he traveled to New York in January to do another round of one-on-one press interviews. Andy Cunningham from Regis McKenna's firm was in charge of handholding and logistics at the Carlisle. When jobs arrived, he told her that his suite needed to be completely redone, even though it was 10 p.m. and the meetings were to begin the next day. The piano was not in the right place. The strawberries were the wrong type but his biggest objection was that he didn't like the flowers. He wanted calla-lilies. We got into a big fight on what a calla-lily is, Cunningham recalled. I know what they are, because I had them at my wedding, but he insisted on having a different type of lily, and said I was stupid because I didn't know what a real calla-lily was. So Cunningham went out, and this being New York, was able to find a place open at midnight where she could get the lilies he wanted. By the time they got the room rearranged, Job started objecting to what she was wearing. That suit's disgusting, he told her. Cunningham knew that at times he just simmered with undirected anger, so she tried to calm him down. Look, I know you're angry, and I know how you feel, she said. You have no fucking idea how I feel he shot back. No fucking idea what it's like to be me. Thirty years old. Turning thirty is a milestone for most people, especially those of the generation that proclaimed it would never trust anyone over that age. To celebrate his own thirtieth in February 1985, Jobs threw a lavishly formal but also playful black tie and tennis shoes party, for 1000 in the ballroom of the St. Francis Hotel in San Francisco. The invitation read, There's an old Hindu saying that goes, In the first thirty years of your life, you make your habits. For the last thirty years of your life, your habits make you. Come help me celebrate mine. One table featured software moguls, including Bill Gates and Mitch Kapoor. Another had old friends, such as Elizabeth Holmes, who brought as her date a woman dressed in a tuxedo. Andy Hertzfeld and Burl Smith had rented tuxes and wore floppy tennis shoes, which made it all the more memorable when they danced to the Strauss waltzes played by the San Francisco Symphony Orchestra. Ella Fitzgerald provided the entertainment, as Bob Dylan had declined. She sang mainly from her standard repertoire, though occasionally tailoring a song like the girl from Ipanema, to be about the boy from Cupertino. When she asked for some requests, Jobs called out a few. She concluded with a slow rendition of Happy Birthday. Scully came to the stage to propose a toast to technology's foremost visionary. Wozniak also came up and presented Jobs with a framed copy of the Zaltair hoax from the 1977 West Coast Computer Fair, where the Apple II had been introduced. The venture capitalist Don Valentine marveled at the change in the decade since that time. He went from being a Ho Chi Minh lookalike who never said trust anyone over 30, to a person who gives himself a fabulous 30th birthday with Ella Fitzgerald, he said. Many people had picked out special gifts for a person who was not easy to shop for. Debbie Coleman, for example, found a first edition of F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Last Tycoon. But Jobs, in an act that was odd yet not out of character, left all of the gifts in a hotel room. Wozniak and some of the Apple veterans Who did not take to the goat cheese and salmon mousse that was served, met after the party and went out to eat at a Denny's. It's rare that you see an artist in his thirties or forties able to really contribute something amazing, Jobs said wistfully to the writer David Sheff, who published a long and intimate interview in Playboy the month he turned thirty. Of course, there are some people who are innately curious, forever little kids in their awe of life but they're rare. The interview touched on many subjects, but Jobs' most poignant ruminations were about growing old and facing the future. Your thoughts construct patterns like scaffolding in your mind. You are really etching chemical patterns. In most cases, people get stuck in those patterns, just like grooves in a record, and they never get out of them. I'll always stay connected with Apple. I hope that throughout my life I'll sort of have the thread of my life and the thread of Apple weave in and out of each other like a tapestry. There may be a few years when I'm not there, but I'll always come back. If you want to live your life in a creative way, as an artist, you have to not look back too much. You have to be willing to take whatever you've done and whoever you were and throw them away. The more the outside world tries to reinforce an image of you, the harder it is to continue to be an artist, which is why a lot of times, artists have to say, Bye, I have to go, I'm going crazy and I'm getting out of here. And they go and hibernate somewhere. Maybe later they reemerge a little differently. With each of those statements, Jobs seemed to have a premonition that his life would soon be changing. Perhaps the thread of his life would indeed weave in and out of the thread of apples. Perhaps it was time to throw away some of what he had been. Perhaps it was time to say, Bye, I have to go, and then re-emerge later, thinking differently. Exodus Andy Hertzfeld had taken a leave of absence after the Macintosh came out in 1984, He needed to recharge his batteries and get away from his supervisor, Bob Belleville, whom he didn't like. One day he learned that Jobs had given out bonuses of up to $50,000 to engineers on the Macintosh team. So he went to Jobs to ask for one. Jobs responded that Belleville had decided not to give the bonuses to people who were on leave. Hertzfeld later heard that the decision had actually been made by Jobs, so he confronted him. At first Jobs equivocated, then he said, Well, let's assume what you are saying is true. How does that change things? Hertzfeld said that if Jobs was withholding the bonus as a reason for him to come back, then he wouldn't come back as a matter of principle. Jobs relented, but it left Hertzfeld with a bad taste. When his leave was coming to an end, Hertzfeld made an appointment to have dinner with Jobs and they walked from his office to an Italian restaurant a few blocks away. I really want to return, he told Jobs, but things seem really messed up right now. Jobs was vaguely annoyed and distracted, but Hertzfeld plunged ahead. The software team is completely demoralized and has hardly done a thing for months, and Burl is so frustrated that he won't last till the end of the year. At that point, Jobs cut him off. You don't know what you're talking about, he said. The Macintosh team is doing great, and I'm having the best time of my life right now. You're just completely out of touch. His stare was withering, but he also tried to look amused at Hertzfeld's assessment. If you really believe that, I don't think there's any way that I can come back, Hertzfeld replied glumly. The Mac team that I want to come back to doesn't even exist anymore. The MAC team had to grow up, and so do you, Jobs replied. I want you to come back, but if you don't want to, that's up to you. You don't matter as much as you think you do anyway. Hertzfeld didn't come back. By early 1985, Burl Smith was also ready to leave. He had worried that it would be hard to quit if Jobs tried to talk him out of it, The reality distortion field was usually too strong for him to resist. So he plotted with Hertzfeld how he could break free of it. I've got it, he told Hertzfeld one day. I know the perfect way to quit that will nullify the reality distortion field. I'll just walk into Steve's office, pull down my pants, and urinate on his desk. What could he say to that? It's guaranteed to work. The betting on the Mac team was that even brave Burl Smith would not have the gumption to do that. When he finally decided he had to make his break around the times of Jobs' birthday bash, he made an appointment to see Jobs. He was surprised to find Jobs smiling broadly when he walked in. Are you going to do it? Are you really going to do it? Jobs asked. He had heard about the plan. Smith looked at him. Do I have to? I'll do it if I have to. Jobs gave him a look, and Smith decided it wasn't necessary. So he resigned less dramatically and walked out on good terms. He was quickly followed by another of the great Macintosh engineers, Bruce Horn. When Horn went in to say goodbye, Jobs told him, Everything that's wrong with a Mac is your fault. Horn responded, Well, actually, Steve, a lot of the things that are right with the Mac are my fault, and I had to fight like crazy to get those things in. You're right, admitted Jobs. I'll give you 15,000 shares to stay. When Horn declined the offer, Jobs showed his warmer side. Well, give me a hug, he said, and so they hugged. But the biggest news that month was the departure from Apple, yet again, of its co-founder, Steve Wozniak. Wozniak was then quietly working as a mid-level engineer in the Apple II division, serving as a humble mascot of the roots of the company and staying as far away from management and corporate politics as he could. He felt with justification that Jobs was not appreciative of the Apple II, which remained the cash cow of the company, and accounted for 70% of its sales at Christmas 1984. People in the Apple II group were being treated as very unimportant by the rest of the company, he later said. This was despite the fact that the Apple II was by far the largest selling product in our company for ages, and would be for years to come. He even roused himself to do something out of character. He picked up the phone one day and called Scully, berating him for lavishing so much attention on jobs in the Macintosh division. Frustrated, Wozniak decided to leave quietly to start a new company that would make a universal remote-control device he had invented. It would control your television, stereo, and other electronic devices with a simple set of buttons that you could easily program. He informed the head of engineering at the Apple II division but he didn't feel he was important enough to go out of channels and tell Jobs or Markula. So Jobs first heard about it when the news leaked in the Wall Street Journal. In his earnest way, Wozniak had openly answered the reporter's questions when he called. Yes, he said, he felt that Apple had been giving short shrift to the Apple II division. Apple's direction has been horrendously wrong for five years, he said. Less than two weeks later, Wozniak and Jobs traveled together to the White House, where Ronald Reagan presented them with the first National Medal of Technology. The President quoted what President Rutherford Hayes had said when first shown a telephone, an amazing invention, but who would ever want to use one? And then quipped, I thought at the time that he might be mistaken. Because of the awkward situation surrounding Wozniak's departure, Apple did not throw a celebratory dinner afterward. So Jobs and Wozniak went for a walk afterward and ate at a sandwich shop. They chatted amiably, Wozniak recalled, and avoided any discussion of their disagreements. Wozniak wanted to make the parting amicable. It was his style. So he agreed to stay on as a part-time Apple employee at a $20,000 salary and represent the company at events and trade shows, that could have been a graceful way to drift apart, but Jobs could not leave well enough alone. One Saturday, a few weeks after they had visited Washington together, Jobs went to the new Palo Alto studios of Hartmut Esslinger, whose company Frog Design.